So we, for our series of Lent this season, are taking up the book of Job. I mentioned to you that John Calvin preached 143 sermons on the book of Job. I'm only going to preach six, so I don't know if that gets me any points. Uh, Our our our, uh, our scripture reference passage this morning is Job, the end of chapter 2, and then all of chapter 3. So now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namanite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. After this, that is. And Job said, Let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. And let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of dawn be dark and let hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth and come out from the womb and expire? Why did knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together, They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter soul, who longs for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden from God, whom God has hedged in? For my signs comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The word of the Lord. (laughs) 
how should a person that trusts God suffer? What does righteous suffering look like? How might a person talk about their pain? What kind of emotions might they express? I think most of us think of Job, actually, as as a model for suffering. But Job that we meet in chapters 1 and 2 of the book. Um, Just to remind you of the story, in the first chapter, after Job has learned from a messenger that all his wealth has been plundered and all his children have been killed, he offers this response. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Instead of losing his faith in God, Job falls down and worships. Instead of cursing God, he utters one of the most raw, honest, and yet beautiful statements of faith and suffering. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's hard to imagine having that kind of faith and trust in God in the light of what has happened to Job. But then, immediately after this, Job is struck again with even deepening suffering. He is afflicted, it says, with loathsome sores from head to toe, and now he is physically overwhelmed with pain and torment. And this pushes Job's wife over the edge. And she says to Job, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, you speak as a foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not re- and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And the narrator wants us to know, because he says it twice, that Job did not sin with his lips at no point. I think this is a very uh, inspiring portrait of trust in God. And the only reference in the New Testament to the book of Job and the figure of Job is from James where James holds up Job as an example of patient suffering. As an example of patient suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, who remained steadfast. Have you not heard of the steadfastness of Job? Job is a model of patient and faithful suffering. But I think for many of us, it's hard to imagine expressing the same kind of trust in God and acceptance of suffering as Job does. And the question is, how did he do it? How can he be so calm, so seemingly accepting of what God has brought into his life? I know that if, that, if what Job had experienced, I had experienced, I would not be responding in that way. And I know this because I have suffered, not nearly like Job, but I was not able to respond with the same kind of calm and equanimity that Job does. However, I have given you a very incomplete picture of Job's suffering. 
an incomplete picture of righteous suffering. Largely what I, you know, those first two chapters give us, if you take them alone, is a very stoic view of suffering. What do I mean by stoic? To, to be a stoic is to endure pain and suffering largely without emotion and without complaint, right? You just accept the pain and you deal with it. You don't sort of express it. You don't complain about it. And this seems to be what Job is doing here. But again, this is not the whole picture. What we see immediately in chapter 3 is that Job's it, we are confronted with this emotionally raw lamentation in which Job curses the day of his birth and he expresses a death wish. He wants to die. And he descends into utter darkness and despair for his life. I mean, this is, I don't know what you were feeling as I read this poem, <laughs> based upon your tepid, you know, the word of the Lord response. I mean, it's a hard one to... to, to to hear and to, to, to absorb. And yet, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I, I think that, that applies to the whole book. It applies to this poem as well. This morning, what I want to help you do is I, I want to help revise your picture of faithful suffering, of righteous suffering. I want to help you rethink your expectations of how you should respond or what you should feel, what is permissible to feel or to express to God. And I think that many Christians today have a very skewed understanding of suffering. We are deeply uncomfortable with dark emotion that suffering brings in. And so we, we worry about any expression of doubt and despair and anger and complaint against God, fearing that somehow this is an expression of unbelief and perhaps even sinful. And I think when we hear this coming from other believers, it, it's very destabilizing, and we often respond like Job's friends, <laughs> worried for his salvation, worried that he is sinning, he's losing his faith, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. Stoicism is not the biblical model of suffering. In fact, I would say that it's deeply dangerous to try to suffer as a Stoic, as somebody who doesn't uh, feel anything or doesn't give expression to feeling, who doesn't complain or lament. I think this is, very, this is a very dangerous way, spiritually speaking, to suffer. <clears throat> We need not just chapters 1 and 2 of Job, we need the whole book of Job, the whole range of Job's um, emotion um, to understand what it means to suffer righteously and well. So the theme of this series is um, trusting God in the darkness. Um, we're, we're looking and asking this question, well, how do we do this? How do we trust God in the darkness, in the, in the depths of pain and suffering and evil in this world? And today... The, the main, the, the singular point is that trusting God in the darkness requires us to confront the dark emotion that suffering stirs up within us. That trusting God in the darkness means confronting directly all the dark emotion that suffering stirs up within us. 
What do I mean by dark emotion? Doubt, fear, despair, rage, anger, sadness, anxiety, grief, bitterness, cynicism, apathy. These are, these are dark emotions, right? And when we feel them, when we feel them, we feel very unstable. We feel very vulnerable. We feel very disconnected from God, from others. And so our temptation is to avoid them, to go around them, to deny them, to want to try to lock them in a closet and to think that if I can just put them away, they'll just take care of themselves. To shortcut around them. But this, this is not how it works. You can't n numb yourself. You can't medicate yourself. You can't go around them. <laughs> you have to confront them. You have to confront dark emotion. So when our kids were little, one of our favorite books, children's books, was uh, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Does people, parents, you know this? We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. It's a beautiful day. We're not scared, right? So family, it's about a family going on a bear hunt into the woods. And as they go, they meet all these different obstacles, right? Long, swishy grass, you know, um, A big dark forest, a deep cold river, thick oozy mud, a swirling, whirling snowstorm, a narrow, gloomy cave. And after each of the obstacles that they meet, they repeat and they say the same things. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no. We have to go through it. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no. We have to go through it. This, I think is the central truth about dark emotion in our life. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. The darkness is real. <clears throat> it is scary. And the, the book of Job, chapter 3, is the darkest chapter of the entire book. We see Job at his lowest. Job despairing, Job with no hope, Job who wants to die with everything in him. He just wants to die. <clears throat> now, upon hearing of the evil that has befallen him, uh, three of his friends come to travel to be with him, to comfort him, to show him sympathy, and they sit with him for seven days and seven nights, and nobody says anything. But then Job finally opens his mouth, and he speaks, and he speaks a curse. <laughs> but it's not a curse against God. It's a curse against himself. It's a curse against the day of his own birth. Now, many um, literary scholars, um, they, they see the book of Job as one of the great works of poetry in all of, all of human history, in particular, Job chapter 3, and the, the literary scholar of Hebrew, Robert Alter, says of this chapter, he says, the author of Job is one of those rare poets, like Shakespeare, who combine awesome, expressive power with a dazzling, stylistic virtuosity. 
Of course, Alter makes the point is that so much, this is a beautiful poem in English, but it's far even more beautiful in Hebrew, which has more, more rhythm and, and harmony and assonance and all those things. Job says, let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let the clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the numbers of the months. As you read the poem, there's this this intensification of of emotion, of darkness. And the poem begins with, let let the day perish. And the word perish is, is, um, it's a little bit too quaint. Um, I think the better word that fits in our culture is cancel it. Cancel the day, right? The way we use that word cancel now, right? Job wants to cancel himself. He wants to cancel his birth. His intense sorrow moves him to want to wipe away his whole existence. And so what he does is, is, is he moves backwards in time, seeking to revert the reversal of his life. And so he starts with the day of his birth, and he says, cancel it. And he starts, then he goes back to the night of his conception. and says, cancel it, right? Two moments of great joy, ordinarily, cancel it. May it be darkness. He wants to completely snuff out any trace of his existence. He wants the darkness to obliterate and erase his memory from the calendar, the day, the month, the year. May there be no memory. Behold that night. Let it be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Leviathan was a fearsome sea creature, a mythological creature, a monster of the deep that symbolized destruction and chaos and death. And Job's like, rouse the Leviathan. Let the Leviathan come up from the deeps and just swallow me whole. Now, one of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry is a feature called parallelism. And there's lots of different kinds of parallelism in the poem. Um, But one in particular here that stands out is a kind of an opposing parallelism of of ideas or concepts, right? So day, night, light, darkness, womb, grave, joy, sadness. And what Job does is he flips them all upside down such that joy is sorrow, light is dark, night is day, the womb is really a tomb. And perhaps if you're kind of listening and you know the scriptures, you also hear echoes of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and the creation poem that Job here is echoing. Uh, there in Genesis 1, it, God says, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And so Job's poem deliberately echoes and recalls this creation poem, but instead of a let it be of creation, it's a let it be not. Let it be uncreated. Let the day perish. Let the darkness, day be darkness. 
And so Job, in a sense, he's seeking a kind of reversal of creation. Instead of goodness, he sees chaos. Instead of life, he sees death. Instead of blessing, it is curse. And he curses, in a sense, Job's poem is an assault on creation. And he curses his own life, and by extension, curses creation. Now, (laughs) you're like, do we have to keep going? You might be thinking, how is what Job says here permissible? Is this God-approved speech? What do you think? See, Job does not directly curse God, but isn't cursing God's creation indirectly cursing God? Some people think so, and Job's friends certainly thought that he was going that direction. And and in in many ways, this opening poem is what launches all of the, the debate and the dialogue through the whole book. And Job's friends want to kind of mount a defense for God in the light of Job's words here. But at no point are we told that Job sinned in what he said. At no point does God say, you sinned in how you spoke to me. And God does speak later. However, but that doesn't mean to say that what Job says here is accurate. And in fact, God will say later on in the book, as he directly challenges Job's poem of uncreation with his own poem of creation, God will say to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job, you speak of things you do not understand. But even though God rebukes Job and his friends, he does not charge Job with sin. God does not censor Job's speech. And I think this is very important (laughs) because God does not want to censor your speech. He does not want you to stop talking. And even if that talking is arguing and complaining and raging and crying and despairing, he doesn't want you to turn away. God can handle it. He can handle it. He's God. In fact, not only can he handle it, he documents it. He records it. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 58 that the Lord, he collects our tears in a bottle. He does not get tired or weary. God wants us to bring all of our dark emotion to him. But we must uh, admit that we are in a very fuzzy, gray zone here, right? Perhaps even a danger zone. Much of what Job says throughout the book is not correct. That's what makes the book of Job such a challenging book. It's not correct or it's not an accurate depiction of God. It doesn't reflect the deep wisdom of creation or God's ways. Um, But the thing about Job 3 is this. What's important about Job 3 is it's not Job is telling us what he thinks about the world. He's not telling you anything about how he thinks about the world. He is telling you how he feels. (laughs) That's very, very important. Now, Job does have thoughts later on, but this poem is like, this is what he's experiencing. This is what he's feeling. But this is a danger zone. This is... A precarious place, and Job brought right up to the precipice, to the abyss of cursing God and losing his faith. And it's not surprising that his friends respond the way they do. 
But Job saying these things and expressing these feelings is not sinful. I think when we feel dark emotion, (laughs) when we feel despair, when we feel rage, when we feel all these things, our temptation is to actually move away from God, to stop talking to God, to, or to, to retreat back and say, I got to deal with this before I go to God. I, you know, it's like, I gotta, when I go to God, I have to have it all together. That is precisely the wrong thing to do. There will be times in your life when you feel like God hates you, when you feel like God, and you, all you can say is that God is like a monster. <laughs> He's a monster. That's what Job will say later on. That the way that God has treated him, it's like a monster. Why would you do that? You will question, you will rage, you'll want to curse God. And yet the last thing you should do is stop talking to God, to turn away, to move away, or to not deal with all that emotion. Somehow to try to bottle it up because it doesn't feel right. (laughs) These things need to be voiced. They need to be expressed. One of the most powerful things about the book of Job is just how honest it is. There are three things that a suffering soul find intolerable. Dishonesty, superficiality, and sentimentality. If you are in a place of suffering, if you've ever suffered, these are things that are intolerable, (laughs) make you want to go crazy, because they're false. They're false. You will find none of that in the book of Job. It is utterly, utterly real and honest and authentic. Job is just in absolute despair. (laughs) He hates his life. He wants to die. He's not suicidal, to be very clear. Job here is not expressing suicidal thoughts, but he would welcome somebody to come and just put a bullet in his head. He would welcome it. Have you ever felt that way, where the pain and the suffering, just this, the constant grind put you and took you to a place where you're like, I just want to die. It would be an act of mercy just to, you know, hit the side of the interstate and just die. Have you ever felt that way? I have. I know many of you have too. And some of you might even very recently. Why is light given to him who is in mercy and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not? And they dig for it more than for hidden treasure who rejoice exceedingly and who are glad when they find the grave. To suffer well requires, I think, of us a a poetic process. There's a sense in which we need to turn our suffering into poetry. The effect of suffering in our life is is a kind of disenchantment. Suffering drains, real suffering. You haven't really suffered if you find your life still meaningful. (laughs) Uh, Suffering drains your sense of meaning and purpose. And, it, and then it, it's like, a, it's like a, an oil spill, and it just sort of spreads out and touches everything in creation to where nothing at all has meaning and purpose. That's what Job is experiencing. He's just like, make it all come untrue. All of creation has no meaning or purpose. 
The poet Ezra Pound said of poetry that it is language charged with meaning to the utmost degree. That poetry is language charged with meaning to the utmost degree. The poetic process of suffering is about trying to find meaning in our suffering. And the simple act of expression, of giving voice to what is going on inside, is the first step to trying to find meaning and purpose in our suffering. And we do that before the Lord. It's not an accident that the majority of the book of Job is poetry. There's only three chapters that is not poetry. Um, it's not an accident that um, the majority of all the Psalms and Lamentations and the Prophets and other areas, even in the New Testament, where suffering is dealt with, it's almost always in the form of poetry. I think this is very important. <laughs> it is very important to take note of. Because poetry, it slows us down, just like suffering slows us down. Poetry forces us to reflect, to be meditative. It resists closure, simplistic answers. It breaks down your expectations of one, how language should work, but even how your life should work. It forces multiple interpretations. It can't be systematized. It's not linear. It can't be turned into an argument. It engages the mind, but it forces you to engage your emotions in your body to expand your imagination. This is what suffering does, right? And that's why it's always in the form of poetry that the scriptures help us deal with it. And I'm not saying, you know, that the application, although it would not be a bad application to write poems about your pain, that's actually quite healing. But even if you're not somebody given to writing or even reading poetry, understand that the process of going through suffering is a lot like reading poems and understanding, <laughs> if you can take that and internalize it. Because there's an inexpressibility to pain. There is an irreducibility that resists easy understanding. And the process of faithful suffering is one that forces us to go through the expressive dark forest of emotion. But on the other side of that forest, it's not the absence of loss, it's not the reversal of our fortunes, of all the things that happen to us, but it is the possibility of something deeper, of something more intimate in our relationship with God, something more enchanted. I think that one of the secrets to suffering is enchantment. Learning to re-enchant or to enchant your suffering. And by that, I simply mean learning to find meaning in it learning to find meaning in it, learning to see the presence of God within it. And this is not an easy or a quick process. The experience of suffering and dark emotion is very isolating. And I talk with people, and I've experienced this personally, um, you're afraid to share how you really feel because you're not sure how that person might react. You might think, oh my goodness, And so dark emotion, it, it fundamentally isolates and makes us feel alone and abandoned. And when Job speaks this poem, he's not speaking to anybody. He's just speaking. He's not dialoguing. It's not even clear this is a prayer. He's just speaking. There's always a sense that nobody can understand. And it's impossible that anyone could join us in that pit of despair. But this is not true. 
as Christians. This is not true. As I said last week, God is with us. And this is not a trite, spiritual platitude. Um, Job and the scriptures do not give us answers and they don't give us a system, a rational system for why evil exists and why bad things happen and suffering. But it does give us a very powerful response, and that is the cross. The cross of Christ is God's response to the problem of evil and in suffering. And in a few minutes here, we will confess from the Apostles' Creed that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell. He descended into hell. What does that mean? What that means is that Jesus' descent into hell means that his struggle and his confrontation with evil and suffering went further down than any of us will have to go. (laughs) He went deeper than any of us will have to descend. He sunk deeper into the pit than Job went. And when you feel like your soul and your whole life is dangling over an abyss of nothingness, of darkness, of despair. Don't be afraid to look down. (laughs) You know why? Because Jesus is below you. He's below you. You will never go further than him. You can't get underneath him because he went all the way down. That's what we confess when we say, he, he descended into hell, which means that he went down to death for three days and ate and drank of death, destruction, despair, desolation, decay. (laughs) You can't go deeper than that. He is always below you. But he who descended also ascended. And friends, the promise is that no matter how how much, how deep, how dark you go, Jesus, when he comes up, he will bring you with him. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would meet us in our despair and our darkness. Help us not to be afraid of the forest of dark emotion that sometimes rages within us, that wants to overcome us. Help us not be afraid to express um, those emotions and those feelings to you and to one another. And to know, Lord, that, that um, it's actually when we taste of real despair that hope becomes all the, the greater in our lives, Lord. And so even as many perhaps struggle in despair, that hope would come along and lift them, lift them out of the pit and give them hope and vision for what you will do someday. We give you thanks in the name of Christ. Amen.